I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Calmer Cornheads. For more information about Calmer Cornheads, visit them at calmercornheads.com. That's C-A-L-M-E-R-C-O-R-N-H-E-A-D-S.com. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. Having grown up on a farm in Sparta, Wisconsin, going into extension service was a natural for Jim Leverich when he came home after obtaining a master's degree in dairy science and farm management. Leveraging his own no-till experience and on-farm research in conjunction with his position as a county extension agent, Leverich was instrumental in spreading the adoption of no-till in his area. In this podcast, no-till farmer editor Frank Lesseter talks with Jim about the lessons learned from 35 years of no-tilling, including why he prefers wider rows for soybeans and 2x0-inch nitrogen placement, his thoughts on residue management, how RTK proved beneficial on his farm, and much more. So without further ado, here are Frank Lesseter and Jim Leverich. I just want to talk to you, what you've done over the years, how you got started, how you got into no-till, your extension work, etc. Did you grow up in Sparta? Yep, I grew up in Sparta uh, on the family farm. Family farm's been here since about 1864, I think it is. So then you went off to University of Wisconsin? Mm-hmm. Got my bachelor's degree in dairy science there. Uh, then what happened after graduation? Then I went to uh, University of Illinois for a master's degree in dairy science and farm management with a, kind of an emphasis in computers, mm-hmm. computer management stuff with uh, dairy cattle. Then what'd you do after that? After that, I uh, did a short stint, but it's you know just a few months with Doughboy and. Uh, then I then immediately from them to extension service. So were you uh, in the county at the, in the extension service when you first? Yeah, I was a dairy and livestock agent for probably about six seven years, mm-hmm. and then I became the agricultural and farm management agent because the the other agent retired and we went down to one agent. So when did you get started? Get interested in no till. I I got interested in it right away when I came back from graduate school. Um, I bought a planter, a 333 no-till planter from um, Wingfield. He sells those Harrow's. He's a guy out of Champaign-Urbana. I bought a new 333 no-till planter from him. This would be what brand? Alice Chalmers. Yep, that's what I thought, but I wasn't positive. Yep, that was a 79 air unit with a... A four bar frame with a dry fertilizer and had the uh, no till coulters out front. So, was it a success right from the start or not? Yeah, pretty much because uh, there was another couple farmers in our county that were experimenting with no till, and I got to know them right away in extension work. They had similar planters. Biggest statement I remember from Gary Weber was the name of the farmer. He's like, you got to get off the damn tractor and go see what you're doing (laughs) (laughs) to make sure the seed's going in the ground, you know. So I took that planter and actually modified it later in its life. I went to a six-row 30, and then I 
converted it to an eight row 20 Kinsey. I put seven by seven toolbar on the back of that frame with some plates and I put Kinsey 2000 series row units of which I still have some of those that I run today. What row widths are you in today with corn? I've been in 20 inch rows since 1995. Okay. You think that's the best bet for you? I assume you do or you wouldn't yeah, be doing that. Yeah, I do because I did. So when I was at the county extension agent job, we had a research farm there. and We did a lot of work with Paul Carter on no-till sure. originally. With the, uh, He was the corn specialist at the time. Yeah. And then we did a bunch of work uh, with TMRs and we did no-till alfalfa. I started doing 20-inch row, 20 versus 30-inch row corn. We built the a planter, the Kinsey, and then we had another deer planter that we used that was pretty much the same planting units. What we found was that in 20-inch corn, you had to, versus 15s, you couldn't be driving on the roads. And that's what Marion and I found, too, when we went across the Midwest to talk with the corn specialists. We couldn't get them to understand that you can't drive on roads when 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 they were using four and six row Kinsey interplant systems, they were driving on all of the 15 inch rows. Some years they'd pick up an advantage and some years they didn't. So you mentioned Marion, that would be Marion Comer at Comer Cornheads who uh, yep. is actually sponsoring this series during this quarter. So do you have one of Marion's headers? No, I don't. I still am using a, uh, he's given me rolls, but I'm satisfied with the, I have a 2200 series case head. Hmm. With it has knife rolls and they're they're knife to knife, um, and they they seem to do an adequate job of chopping up my stalks. Thought about buying another head and putting his on there and then doing some comparisons, but I haven't done that yet. So this, this he- summer actually, yeah, this header you got is it for twenty inch rolls or? Yeah, it's a twelve row twenty inch head okay. that made was. It was probably, uh, I think it was a New Holland head that Case adopted and used. They used the 2200 series head was a good head. The 3000 series they had trouble with, I guess. They weren't as good a head. Mm-hmm. And the 4000 series heads they have now are good heads again. Right. They've gone back to the 800 style. 8 and 900 series and the 1000 series old Case or IH heads, they had knife to knife, four knives that did a lot better job of chopping stalks. Right. So the fact that you were no-tilling yourself must have made it easier to sell no-till through your extension job, right? Oh, definitely. And so then I had a lot of field days mm-hmm. with farmers, and I'd set, I had a no-till a group of farmers that I used to weed experiment, and I'd encourage people to try no-till but not to put all their acres in it, just learn how to do it first, then... Uh, once you're confident, move on. Right. Yeah, and I'd have to say I used a drill. I went and bought a, I had a tie drill, and I went and bought a Yetter Coulter caddy out of Streeter, Illinois. Mm-hmm. That's where I could get the best pricing, a brand new caddy, and yeah. I still have that drill. But I find my research showed me that I got more yield out of 20-inch soybeans than 7-inch. Right. Well, the other thing I always, no. always looked at over the years is uh, – even if you got a bush or two less, maybe you were farther ahead by not having another piece of equipment to work with. That's true. But now I'm beginning to think that uh, as I plant soybeans earlier every year, mm-hmm. um, it may pay to have another planter and be running them both. But again, it's a farm management decision at that point. You know, how much 
how many people can you have working and how much manpower do you have and um, what's the logistics of getting all that done appropriately. And so we just have a big planner for, I think big planners are the answer, but a lot of people don't. 2420 is what I'm using on a thousand acres. Right. So that's a 40 foot planner. Would you ever consider planting soybeans ahead of corn? Yeah, I would. I, I've seen people doing it. Now, we haven't had a frost in June for quite a while, like we used to get once in a while. So I don't know, you know, how that would fare out. We used to get afraid of planting too early because of that frost right. potential. But but there were several farmers here this year that planted their soybeans first. I don't know. Well, I guess the jury is out. The soybean specialists are telling us that it pays, but Wisconsin's is. I, I don't know about Minnesota's. He's he's kind of up in the air on that. Yeah, my daughter's doing her PhD. He's one of the professor she works with right Seth Nave so what with your work at extension and then later you worked with discovery farms right well I actually only worked for discovery farms for maybe the six to eight months and then I went out on my own I, I wrote my own grants and did several research projects where I was funded hmm. uh, by grants that I wrote so what kind of research and so I did I did that 17 or 18 years I guess I, I did a precision ag, um, some research on nitrogen rates with uh, using precision ag, and we're, we're still working on some of that data today. Then we did a lot of work on manure separation systems, um, did a lot of work with uh, nutrient management uh, applications. So it was mostly precision ag and manure management. Um, are you, yeah. Are you using cover crops? I'm not yet. I've, I've been toying with the idea, but I have so darn much residue. Maybe it would be worth having another crop growing there, but I just haven't taken that leap yet. Right. For these uh, Wisconsin dairy farmers that are no-tilling and harvesting corn silage, cover crops kind of a no-brainer for them to get something on the surface? Yeah, I think if you're a cover. if you're a corn silage dairy farmer, you should definitely be growing cover crops and then mm-hmm. harvesting them in the spring. We have experiences at Larson Acres where I did a lot of my research south of Madison. They were very good collaborators. And the trouble they've had with cover crops is unless it's harvested off in the spring, it you know, the they had a lot of trouble with armyworms and stuff like that mm-hmm. if they tried to knock the cover down and spray it. Right. So, so how many years uh, have you been no-tilling since 1984. Okay. So that would be, what, 35, I guess. Don't think anything of it anymore. I don't know why I'd want to. I sold all my tillage equipment except a John Deere Ripper, but I haven't used that for. I use that in research, too. I When I had eight-row equipment, 20-inch, I'd run that Ripper every other eight rows, mm-hmm. and and I couldn't find any benefit to it. Right. Have you looked at strip-till at all? Um, I did use, you know, I built a tool that was in the farm journal contest that stripped, uh, my fertilizer in deep bands below the seed okay. four inches deep. And then I put in on in between, and then I planted over that, but I didn't do regular strip till. I think strip till would have its application maybe in those wet soils out in Minnesota, but I don't know. Otherwise it's like, why are we doing this? So in your work with uh, Extension and later consulting with others and talking, 
What do you think are the big big benefits of no-till? Well, I think the biggest benefits are saving water and soil. I think that soil is a big benefit, but a lot of times saving the water. And then um, I think that precision ag has allowed no-till in my farm to go a lot better because I I use RTK and I plant in between the crowns. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of the limitations to getting a good stand and no-till are related to the fact that people try to plant in old rows. Those corn roots are really, you know, quite monstrosities nowadays. <laughs> so if you want to get in a good seed bed, you get in the middle. Right. So what's your rotation? It's 50-50. I have considered going to more corn. Hmm. I do plant more corn. Every year I plant um, probably 10, 15 acres of corn on corn just to make sure I'm doing it. So in case I wanted to switch over, I know what I'm doing. Right. So I am, and I put the anhydrous on now with RTK, which then allows me to put the anhydrous on. I, I could put it on the same day I'm planting if I wanted to, and not have to worry about it anymore because I'm never on an anhydrous seam. Right. So the RTK, I think addition to the no tilling is uh, it's a huge benefit that would get rid of a lot of problems that we faced in the old days that we couldn't, you know, the trash. So my concept on trash management, or I shouldn't call it trash residue is um, that I try and leave the stalks as high as possible when I pick them. Uh, And then I, those stalks then, and I tried to straddle those rows, the grain cart knocks some of them down. But when I'm planting, I like those rows to pull the, they actually act as a conveyor to pull the material through my corn planter. I see. Because then the row cleaner throws that that chopped up stalk from the top and the leaves over into that row, and that row is going down between the row units and pulling the trash through the corn planter. So tell me a little about your fertility program. You mentioned anhydrous. What else are you doing? So my fertility program is a soil sample every three to four years. Head of corn, it's ammonium sulfate and uh, potash at about 100 pounds each. Usually about 135 pounds of anhydrous ammonia with N-serve in the spring. As close to planting as possible. Okay. The fertilizer is broadcast a couple weeks before that. And then the the phosphorus and potash are variable rated in front of beans to get okay. my soil test levels where I want them. So, so that, to me, that was a much better investment doing the variable fertilizering than the deep banding of fertilizer. So I'm trying to farm, with 20-inch rows, I'm trying to farm the whole field, not just strips is the way I look at it, because with, with uh, corn being 12 to 14 inches apart in a 20-inch row, you pretty much you have almost equal distance spacing. What are you doing for weed control? Weed control is fairly simple. It's, uh, you know, it's stacked hybrids with, um, we come in with, um, after the corn is about a V1 to V2, we come in and, and put down a roundup to clean up any weeds that were there. And then a residual of, uh, it's usually Trismax, which is dual tool and atrazine and, uh, Callisto for broadleaf control. And uh, in the soybeans, we we do those usually after they have emerged too. So being we've no-tilled so long, we don't seem to have many 
We don't have a lot of weeds. We don't spend a lot on weed control on herbicides. Well, that's good. Generally about 13 bucks an acre. Wow. So that's a lot less than what, what a lot of people are spending. So yeah. I, I ask you what the big pros were of no-till. What are the things that keep other farmers from going to no-till? What do they worry about? Well, I think they worry about compaction with big mm. combines. Sure. And with if you're a dairy farmer, it's it's more difficult because you're hauling these slurry tankers around on it. Right. Um, so compaction is probably one of the biggest issues. But then I've found, too, uh, even though we have some compaction, uh, you know, I've tried ripping, but I, uh, sometimes I think the ripping makes it worse mm-hmm. because it destroys the structure that's out there. That, that This older no-till will probably uh, mend itself better if you leave it alone. Yeah. And I like to drive on the rows, so a lot of people would think I'm nuts, but I, I'd rather wear out tires than create compaction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> tires are expensive, but if you're driving on those stocks and crowns, they're they're holding you. Yeah. Uh, you meant you mentioned you like to cut your stocks as high as you could. What? How many inches tall would that be? Oh, I would say that um, probably about knee high, so okay. 18 to 20 inches or so. Depends where the year is. And if Do you use any herb or, um, fungicides or uh, insecticides? No insecticides. Even in the past, and we haven't had many much aphid pressure the last few years, but even when we used to have a lot of that, I, I really resisted using insecticides. I didn't want to kill off my beneficials. And maybe I lost a few bushels some of those years, but um, I just didn't want to do that. I use, you know, stacked hybrids and, and varieties that have as high disease resistance stuff as possible. Yeah. So variety selection to me is really important in no-till. How do you pick hybrids I, or varieties? I'm I'm unique that way as well. I Every year I plant uh, about 20 to 25 corn hybrids and probably 10 to 15 soybean varieties in replicated plots on my farm. It takes me a couple extra days of planting. Mm-hmm. but I think that's the best time I've spent. I keep in the hybrids. I have two or three main hybrids and two or three main soybean varieties, and then they will stay in my plots and compare to the new stuff, and then I will gradually switch them out as I'm comfortable. Well, over the years, you've you've written a number of things. We've done a number of articles on, it, on, on your operation, and uh, you did a series for us in every issue for a couple years. One of the things you pointed mm-hmm. out, if you're going to start a no-till, you should be in clean fields. Can you elaborate on that? So I think the rules would be the same if you're no-tilling as anything, is that you'd want, you'd want clean fields. So if you were just getting started, you might want to prepare ahead of time to to use a herbicide program that would get you cleaned up. And then I think uh, a lot of people use turbo tilling too, and I'm not a big fan of that either because I tried that once every other eight rows, and all those loose crowns actually seem like they cause more problems than they did good for the corn planter itself to operate properly. And the other thing with no-till, I think it's very important to have nitrogen on the planter so because your soils might be colder, they may not be, but they might be, you need to make sure you have a, a pop-up fertilizer and a 2 by 0 There's a good lot of good research out of Minnesota that shows you 2 by 0 is just as good as 2 by 2 So you don't need all that extra weight on your corn planter. You can actually put tubes on your planter off the back and clean out the residue and put that on the soil surface so it's not tying up in the residue. 
and get your nitrogen and sulfur. 15, 20 pounds of, of uh, nitrogen and sulfur, I am not exactly sure. I think it's around 15 pounds of that as well, and then we broadcast the rest. So on the 2 by 0 where are you going to place it? On the 2 by 0 we place it behind the closing wheels. The other thing, I think it's really important to clean your residue out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you don't have any interference with the planter. On the two by zero, you're going to put it two inches deep and right on the row. No, it's two inches on, two inches off the row on the surface. Got it. Okay, got it. I had it backwards. Yep. Okay. Yep. And then that way you don't have to buy all that heavy equipment and put all that extra weight on your corn planter and carry it around all those coulters and get torqued off like my neighbor did this year because they were plugging all the time. So. <laughs> And then that just screws up the stand because it creates these bunches. We'll rejoin Frank and Jim in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Calmer Cornheads, for supporting our Natal Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Why pay the high price for a new cornhead when you can yield better results at a fraction of the cost by upgrading your current head with Calmer Cornheads BT Chopper Stock Rolls? As the only stock roll in the industry with a patented feeding chamber in combination with 10 razor-sharp knives, BT choppers cut, chop, and shear corn stalks into confetti-like residue for faster decomposition, easier planting, and higher yields. Solve your corn head problems for good and place your order today by calling 309-629-9000 or visit the website at calmercornheads.com. Before we get back to the conversation, Frank is going to share a little-known no-till farmer fact. Back in 1985, Terry Snyder said equipment savings were probably the most important economic aspect of switching to no-till. We've eliminated $150,000 of equipment since starting to no-till, he told me, and he's a veteran no-tiller from Shirley, Illinois. When you take that times 14% interest that was being paid at the time, divided by 1,000 acres, you see a savings of more than $20 per acre. Snyder credits no-till with maintaining yields while sharply reducing costs. He's found no-till has also freed up more time to spend making management decisions like marketing or walking the fields rather than riding through them on a tractor. And now we'll get back to the conversation with Frank and Jim. On your farm, what kind of soils have you got? Heavy soils, clays, sand? I got anywhere from 1% organic matter to 5% now. Two-thirds of my soils are very productive clay loam, silt loam soils, and the other the other third or 25% is sandy loam, which well, no-till is easier to do on, and it's very important because it saves all your water. Yeah. What would your normal yields be? Ah, they'd be in the low twos, 210, 220 uh, for corn, and beans would be 50 to 60 seems like we're having a hard time getting much higher than that in soybeans. Mm-hmm. But I think it's because we've had them too long. Maybe we need to be going to two years of corn. It seems like a lot of farmers that go two and one actually do fine. They don't seem to lose much corn yield the first year, mm-hmm. but they help the bean yield. Then that changes your whole farm management thing again, where you got a lot of work to do. Right harvesting that corn. One of the other things you pointed out in these articles you did for us over the years is that it's important to measure what you're managing, what you're trying new. Well, yeah. So to me, farming with precision ag is much like DHI records in that you measured the production of every cow. Sure. And uh, so you might as well be measuring the production of every acre 
mm-hmm. and managing the nutrients of every acre because if your fields have variability, you're just wasting money because if you put on fixed amounts of fertilizer, you then end up with a situation where the low-yielding spots just build fertility to beat kingdom come but don't need to. Mm-hmm. So you might as well be moving that fertilizer to areas of the field that can use it. Right. But, you know, it's really all about water, I think, water management in the field. Some fields, some soils, it's kind of amazing. I bought a new farm up here, and I don't think you could do much to that farm that would screw up the yields. It's just (laughs) amazing soil. It's a clay loam. (laughs) And the soybeans just take off there and yield 80 bushels, and the corn yields 240, and it's just, it's water holding capacity and tilt, you know. Right. So Just like Marion, I can see why, you know, he's doing a study, but he's showing how fertilizer doesn't pay for him. Hmm. I'm sure it doesn't. Right. He doesn't need fertilizer. His land is so good there in spots that, so I don't want to, I don't want the, all farmers to presume that though, because, right. he, he, you know, Arlington Prairie is another good example. So we have a lot of research at the university coming out of Arlington Prairie. And to me, that's a big mistake. Hmm. We need to. We need to do some research there, but we need to be doing it all out on farms like Frank Lesser did. You got all these people thinking how to talk to each other and learn from each other because every farm has its own set of management uh, situations. And the only way you learn is to measure and manage, measure to manage. Right. The only way to learn how to manage that farm better is to do that. Every person's different. I used to think if you had two successful no-tillers, across the road from one another using two different systems. If you had them flip systems, they might flop. They might fail because it wasn't what they were used to. They might, yeah. <laughs> like this year, I have a nitrogen study. I was going to do it anyhow, but my daughter included it in her PhD because she's doing nitrogen work. But I, I put out a zero anhydrous 70, 90, 110, 24 row wide, so that was a 40 foot application of anhydrous in those, and then it came sure. back with 60 pounds of side dress on 12 of each of those rows, mm-hmm. and it'll be very interesting to see what that does to the nitrogen management on that farm. Right. You know where where and university will do that, but they'll do it in 50 pound increments. Right. And to me, that doesn't mean anything because as a farmer, I want to know where we're going to tune it in. Right. At 10 or 20 pound increments. I don't want to know in 50 pound increments. Right. So <laughs> the, the technology we have today that we didn't have 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there's no reason not to tune it in. Variable rate fertilization. Are you, are you using it? Yes. So I, yep. I, I, in front of my corn, I use the fixed rate of 100 of potash and 100 of, because I don't have any potash in my starter. Sure. I want enough potash available on top for that corn. Mm-hmm. And so then I do my variable rate potash in front of soybeans, and I try and keep my potash levels between 125 and 150 parts per million. So that's higher than the university recs, but I look at fertilizer like people used to say in the old days, the checkbook. I want to lower my risk, so I want to make sure there's enough money in the checkbook right? so that I never limit my yields. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to get excessive. There's parts of my farm like before we grid sample, they were up at 300 parts per million of potash. 
Yeah. Well, those were only putting 60 pounds on. I'm still putting some on because I don't trust the release of that quick enough. So I want to make sure there's always some easy stuff to get to hmm. for the crop. So your your daughter is working on her PhD at the University of Minnesota in mm-hmm. soils, looking at nitrogen. What what is she telling you? You're doing wrong. <laughs> Uh, not too much, really, but we'll know more after we do the after we do this experiment together again. I did this experiment years back with Larry Bundy, mm-hmm. and Larry Bundy would tell me time and time, you know, everybody's side dressing now. Yeah, and I think the reason they're side dressing is because they're putting on urea, and um, they're losing their urea. Mm-hmm. So then they got to come back and side dress when they split apply. Yeah. So I don't like anhydrous. I don't like working with it, but it's still the best nitrogen source there is because it's very stable. Right. Um, because it has to go through a couple conversions. So a lot of no-tillers don't like anhydrous because they think it kills all the worms, but I don't think it does. I got lots of worms. I put it on in 40-inch bands, so it's mm. every other row. I really have a concentrated band of anhydrous, so it takes it much longer to go away. Uh-huh. Whereas the rest of the industry is all moving away from that and they're putting on urea-based products, which with this climate change, I don't want to say climate change. I want to say, I, I, I don't think our, I think our climate is just in a cycle. Being the fact that we're in a wetter period, we have to be way more cognizant of how we manage our nitrogen. So my, like my son, he works for Rogator now and he, has North, South Dakota, Nebraska. The reason they use so many uh, terrigators and rogators is it's a matter of speed. Right. They can't they can't get the anhydrous on. It's just too many acres to get over. Go so ahead. they suffer some. They lose some nitrogen because of you know if they use an inhibitor and come you know and in that situation where they're doing that, then I think they should spread it two or three times. So what do you got first? Then if, if they if they lose, I have a I have a rogator seven hundred. And you got a thousand acres. How many acres will you put on that rogator a year? Fifteen hundred. So it seems like a big investment, and it, I got a better deal. I have to granted because there was a unit they were using there, and I got a good buy on it. Mm-hmm. But you know, if you figure around here, the average spring cost is eight nine dollars an acre. I'm guessing because of the smaller fields out west to be six or seven. But then usually when you run chemicals through somebody else's sprayer, you're adding another eight nine bucks. So if you save $15 an acre, you're not going to save all that because you got your own fuel and your own labor. But you know what? Spraying those fields takes two or three days. That's about as good a crop scouting as you can do. Get in right. the damn sprayer and go look at them. <laughs> well, well the, other, the other thing is you can spray when you want to spray or when it needs it. Yeah. Not only that, but I mean, I think it's important for people to think about when they do those jobs themselves, they can either charge the labor cost or they can say, well, that was actually crop scouting I was doing as well. Right. Same with the combine. When you hire that done, you don't see any of that stuff. Even though your yield monitor gives you a map, you still don't see what you need to see. Well, you can find a problem area in the middle of the field you'd never seen otherwise. Yeah, you would never see it. That problem area might be something that's going to develop into a much bigger problem if you hadn't learned about it ahead of time. Right. So, how was 2019 for you? Normal, a bigger problem, or what? 19 was uh, 
the only challenges we have now are we have more wet spots, high water table. It was really difficult to decide whether you should plant or not. Mm-hmm. But we just went and planted anyhow. Yeah. I mean, I just decided, well, the forecast was rain, rain, rain. So every time we got a chance that it was dried up enough to go without sticking too much, we went and planted. And that turned out to be a good decision. Were uh, other farmers in your area with minimum tillage able to do this, or they have to wait longer than you did? I think they had just as much problem, if not more, by tilling the soil because then they created, if they were in any kind of clay soil, for example, they created a something that was potential to to get right. compacted and 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 you know get hard, get a crust. Right. So soybean prices and corn prices, when you were thinking of planting in April or May, weren't doing too well. Did you make any changes this year to save money? No, no, I kept the same plan. The yield is still king. So, you know, you cut a few bucks out, so you cut 10 pounds of nitrogen. Well, that's what, 10 pounds of nitrogen. It's like a bushel and a half of corn, and you might lose 10 10 bushels of corn. Right. Right. (laughs) So, no, I don't do that. I, I play the marketing in the grain bin. Of course, I've been farming long enough that I'm not in a cash flow dilemma like some people. Sure. So I don't have to uh, always sell. I'm not required to sell. I only sell when I think I can make good profit. Mm-hmm. Now, this year I had the corn sold about as good as possible, but then the darn river problem, um, shipping problem, has widened out the basis. And, you know, I had the corn marketed in the 450s for these corn, but I the basis was 20 cents higher than it should have been, but, and I was kind of stuck, you know, but, so I think I will, that marketing thing, I'm going to have to start going to more of a, more hedging without a, not a hedge to arrive. Do you know, understand those contracts? Yeah, not really well. Well, a hedge to arrive is generally a contract you buy through Cargill or ADM, and then they let you set the basis later, but you're stuck delivering it to them. Yeah. And so what I need to do is just a pure hedge where I just sell on the board, pay the two cents a bushel or one cent for the trade. And then when I sell the cash, get out of the hedge. So will you and truck, that way I'm not stuck. Right. So will you truck um, corn like to La Crosse or to the river? I I truck it to La Crosse and Nesita. Nesita is okay. an ethanol plant. Oh, and then I right. take the right. balance to La Crosse. You're putting in a new grain dryer this year? Mm-hmm. Tell me about it. I put them. in a tower dryer. And the tower dryers are, they're quite expensive, but they um, they use, according to their calculations, probably about 50 to 60% of the gas that I would use in a conventional dryer that doesn't have a reclaimer for the heat. Because yeah. Yeah. so what this dryer does is it, it's like a big cylinder, and in the bottom third of the cylinder, it sucks air in, and then the fan is inside the cylinder, and it... Um, adds heat and then blows the the moisture out on top, but it's reclaiming all the heat in the corner that's cooling off in the bottom. So what brand did you buy? I bought GSI, but part of that's because I'm a, a GSI dealer. Oh, that makes <laughs> and, sense. <laughs> and it's it's a good product. It's a very good product. Yeah. Do you ever dry ever dry soybeans? No, well, I, I air dry them often. I'll often combine them at 15, 16%. Mm-hmm. And then 
just put air on them in the bin. Yeah. And move them around. What do you like to so, What do you like for moisture on corn to harvest? Usually it's 22ish. I probably maybe combine my corn too dry, but my fields are evidence that I don't have a lot of field loss because I try not to put much in for volunteer corn. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll have a few. So I have some corn out in the field, in my soybean fields, but um, they're very, pretty much very clean. Yeah. Unless I drop some ears, um, but I don't get any grain on the field. So I must not be shelling much in the head is what I'm getting at. Yeah. So looking ahead to next year, a year after, you got any new ideas you want to try? Uh, my marketing's got to, I need to try different marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was looking at side dressing, so I'm looking at side dressing again um, with this experiment. I built a little 12-roll applicator that I used to do this research for my daughter. Sure. So I will see if... But, see, I'm always concerned about going back into the crap with 20-inch rows. And with all this wet weather we've been getting, yeah. I don't know how side dressing would go. I, it might create some compaction. So I think that's probably about the only thing I'm trying. I'm trying to learn how to be retired, too, but I'm not doing that very well. <laughs> well, either am I. Either am I. <laughs> I guess I just enjoy doing stuff too much, you know, having a project. I kind of miss working with farmers. I maybe should be doing some consulting, but I haven't done much because then that's, that commits me. Yeah. How much labor does it take to run this 1,000 acres? I'm thinking it's about a half-time job. Maybe it's more than that, you know, like when I do things like build this uh, corn dryer and stuff, I did all this work myself. So, you know, I spend, I spend more of my time building stuff. The cover crop thing intrigues me, but I still haven't figured out if it pays for a cash cropper to do it. I think if you live South further in Indiana and Illinois and all that, it would be definitely profitable thing. But here I'm, so I've been toying with trying to figure out if there's a way I could, um, go in with the rogator and beans with some kind of suspended tank and right. go out there and apply, you know, apply in the soybeans before they drop their leaves. But then again, I don't know if we have enough growing season here. I think it's different. It's different than if you're the guy in, who's the big no-tiller in Ohio that does all that stuff. Uh, Brant? Yeah, David Brant, yeah. He's been doing it for years, but that's a different climate than we have. Right. Well, it's like me. I go back, you know, I'm I'm getting old. I'm 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 even older than you are, but I go back to the 50s and my dad was seeding sweet clover as a cover crop in the fall. Yeah. And then we tended to get away from it for a number of years. Cover crops, if you if you got wheat, it makes more sense because you can get a longer growing season than you yeah. do after corn or soybeans, but there are certainly a lot of guys making it work and what you're talking about is with the rogator, it goes back in the 70s, we started no-till farming in 1972, and people were doing it, and there, people were aerial applying cover crops in the soybeans that were still growing, which is kind of like the same idea you have with your rogator. But and I don't, I can't see putting stuff on after you harvest. I mean, I, maybe you'll get enough kick there. Uh, well, I guess there's been enough moisture lately, but you know, last year, there's last two years we've had we've been freezing to death the middle of November. Then it warm up afterwards, but I mean, we were combining corn and it was like eight degrees. Well, I think cover crops are catching on. It's part of the soil health movement, but uh, 
not for everybody. And it's, you know, some people say, man, they pay off and other guys say, I don't quite see how they are. I, I'm sure they're helping the soil, but I don't, don't see where I'm getting a good return for it yet. But then some of these people that have done these complicated mixes, uh, this year, they're, they're saying a lot of cover crop seeds going to be short, but I'm guessing those people are so into cover crops that they they, they would put in something like wheat, rye, or even oats, just mm-hmm. because, they, just because just to, they believe. Just to do it. Yeah. Now, I do use covers where I used to have waterways that I don't have waterways, so I will often take the drill out there and seed oats in. Yeah. In, in into my corn and bean fields in the where the water would roll if I had a real problem, right. and then I'll just kill it. You know, it'll it'll come up four or five inches. The oats grow fast, and by the time I get out there to put my herbicide on, it's there's enough root mass and stuff there that helps to hold the ground. Right. So you you said earlier you got some land that's one percent organic matter and five percent. Are you boosting? Is no-till helping you boost organic matter? Oh, I think so. I don't um, follow that dramatically. I just know that my my productivity of my sandier soils is way better than it would be if I was working it. Right. It's right. just just the water holding. See, to me, so when they changed it to Natural Resource Conservation Service, I think they lost the farmer. They didn't when it was the Soil and Water Conservation Service. Right. Uh, so people knew they were losing soil, but they forgot about the water. <laughs> right. <laughs> the water is one of the most important parts of it. Well, I remember the very first no-till conference we had in Indianapolis in 1993. We had Dwayne Beck talking from South Dakota, yep. Pierre. And he got up and said, you guys in Ohio no-till to get rid of the water. And in South Dakota, we no-till to keep every drop that falls on the ground. Exactly. Yeah, he's right. And and I think he's right even, you know, on these clay soils that we farm, they're just so much more forgiving because they've been no-till. It'd probably be the best soil you could have here is right. the clay loams that I have. Right. Better than silt loams. And, it, you know, when you used to plow them, that was not the case because they'd turn into cement. Right. <laughs> so you, you've added some, you've bought some land the last couple of years, I take it. Yeah, I've bought in some farms, and I'm renting some farms that I'll probably have future ownership in. So, yeah, do you do you look at the tillage practices that were used? Do you think no-till ground is worth more or not? Yeah, you know, it probably would be worth more. I'm not sure that people would uh, pay for it, but um, actually, the farms I picked up, this guy's been no-tilling. Um, they they'd all been no-tilled for. Mm-hmm. At least 15 years, maybe 20. Oh, wow, that's great. No-till is a big deal around. I mean, we we had a high, we have a high adoption of no-till in this county, probably because Dave Olson, the old county agent, and I did a lot of work with it. Right. People figured it out. I mean, we got a lot of dairy farmers no-tilling as well. Well, when you said that no-till's done very well in your area, I was going to say it's because of you, and you mentioned Dave Olson, but... It's, you know, you guys believed in it. You saw that you could make it work and you could help farmers make it work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mean, to me, it's just a financial no-brainer. Jake, he just, uh, my son shakes his head. He's out in North South Dakota and Nebraska's his territory. He's a product specialist for interrogators and rogators. But the amount of tillage out there, you know, 
I don't know if it would work in those wet soils or not. He keeps asking me, and I said, well, I don't know. I can't judge those farmers <laughs> without doing it myself. I think these last few years have been tough for farmers. Uh, it's been tough for no-tillers, but I think no-tillers are, are better off than the people using more tillage a bit. Oh, I'm sure they are because they're costs. Right. You know, like my fuel costs, I, I don't think I burn more than a gallon to a gallon and a half putting on fertilizer, spraying, and planting, and I burn about the same harvesting, not more than three to four gallons. I spend way more on fuel getting the crop, the crop to market than I do growing it. Right. Wow. So what do you think no-till is worth per acre to you? Well, I wouldn't doubt it's worth 60, 70 bucks. If you started to add the machinery costs, yeah. you know, you'd probably pick up another $40, $50 an acre in machinery costs. I'm thinking you're picking up probably $20, $25 an acre a year in um, overall soil that you're saving on the farm in the long scope of things. Yeah. And I would hope that you're saving a lot more nutrients. You know, I think a lot of young no-tillers have problems because they bind up nutrients in residue and then, and then they don't get released for a while. That's part of the reason the system takes a while, but I think it's all due to fertilizer placement. Right. So they can they can overcome that with good fertilizer placement. I remember when we first started, people would would say, uh, "Oh, I'm going to try no-till, but I think I'll have to mow board plow in four or five years." And I yeah. used I used to say to them, "Well, fine, go ahead and try it." But I also also <laughs> learned later those guys never never did mow board plow. They saw the benefits, and even though they thought they might have to, they didn't. Well, you know, you look at the, some of the most productive soils in the country and they're old marshes and, and uh, you know, that were just an ecosystem. And that's kind of what you're trying to do with no-till, I think, is make it a, your marsh grass is corn and your soybeans are your legume. And right. you're trying to just make that natural system work. Well, I, it's been great talking to you. I think we covered about all there was, unless you think of something else. Sounds good. Okay, thanks very much. Yep, okay. see ya. Bye-bye. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a reader inquiry. Die-hard no-till fans seem to think more growers should be no-tilling these days, and several have recently asked me to point out the states where no-till is the strongest. Recently published data from the 2017 Census of Agriculture indicates there are a dozen states where no-till is used already on more than 50% of the crop acreage. This is led by Tennessee with 79% of the state's cropland being no-till. Other states in the 70% category include Virginia, Maryland, Montana, and South Dakota. Three states fall in the 60% category for no-tilling ground, and they include Kentucky, New York, and West Virginia. Four states have 50 to 59% of their ground being no-tilled, and these include Nebraska, Delaware, Georgia, North Carolina. Across the country, 37% of our U.S. cropland was no-tilled in 2017. Thank you to Frank Lesseter and Jim Leverage for today's conversation. If you're interested in more information from Jim, you can find a slew of articles he's written for No-Till Farmer over the years by simply typing his name in the search bar at the top of the No-Till Farmer homepage. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll consider joining us for the 28th Annual National No-Tillage Conference next year in St. Louis, Missouri from January 7th through the 10th. Visit notillconference.com to register. 
Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Calmer Cornheads, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at licitormedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm managing editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.